0: a closer look at the news and events affecting prince george welcome to after nine on 93.1 cfis fn
1: a wet wednesday morning out there i would wish I'd in the host chair we are going to start today's show with front burner from cbc news an episode which was uploaded on august the 7th yeah okay. the reuben the
2: yes. great choice can i get you a side with that Let's do sweet potato fries. Sweet potato fries, awesome. And for yourself. Can I get the fish tacos, please? The fish tacos,
1: perfect. I will get that up for you guys.
2: That's the sound of lunch service at a spot in the east end of Toronto where locals go when they want something delicious, and for someone else to do the dishes. Of course, now everything's a bit different. Uh, When they enter the restaurant, we do have to fill out the contact tracing and have everyone document one member of their party, Provide a phone number so, just in case we have an outbreak, which we hope we'll never have to contact them, uh, they're able to be tracked. And same with everyone else who came in that day. But yeah, we have all our menus online. Uh, we have a QR code that you can scan. You know, you'll have your own little space, your own little bubble away from everyone else. The beer's still cold and the food's still great. <laughs> yeah, cheers. <laughs> Enjoy the beers. Thank you. As restaurants open up in some capacity in most places across the country, I'm talking with two restaurateurs about the reopening, surviving the shutdown, and how they think the pandemic will shape the future of dining. Robert Belchin is the chef and owner of Vancouver's Campagnolo, Monarch Burger, and Papina Canteen. He's also the president of the Chef's Table Society of BC and host of the Mise Plus Plus podcast. Samira Moyadin is the co-owner of banu an Iranian eatery and commissary in Toronto she's also an associate producer at the CBC radio show the current where I used to work
0: Fish tacos?
2: thank you' good I'm Josh block this is fromburg let's eat Hello to you both. Hi Josh. Hi there. So it, it feels like about this really weird moment of transition right now where a lot of restaurants across the country are now being allowed to open up indoor service, of course with, with limited seating and with new health guidelines. How are you feeling about this right now, Robert? That is the, the million dollar question. I was <laughs> I was tasked with helping our
3: restaurant association here in British Columbia with coming up with the guidelines for all the restaurants in British Columbia and we wanted to try to get everybody on the same page uh, and work with the health department and work with the provincial government to come up with guidelines that made sense to restaurateurs and to chefs and to front of the house managers. I think we've achieved that. Um, the hard part is getting buy-in from all the different restaurants hmm. to, to get them to actually apply those guidelines and recommendations and then trying to earn customer confidence back. That's, that's the biggest goal.
2: Right, which I, which I want to ask you about, but before I do, Samira, what's it been like for you right now at this moment to, to be part of this gradual reopening of an indoor service?
4: Well, we've actually decided not to participate in Phase 3 at this point.
2: Stage
0: 3 of reopening starts Friday. Playgrounds, gyms, and movie theatres can reopen, and restaurants can serve indoors.
4: Uh, we're not allowing people inside. And we made that decision based on the fact that we're a small place. And if you actually put tables six feet apart, I might have maybe three tables in my entire (laughs) establishment. So we have a lot more freedom just doing the patio at this moment. And and we're really liking this street life. You know, the moment that we were able to set up this patio and people started coming in. It's so strange, the feeling you get. Like, you just want to grab these people and be like, hello,
5: I miss you. (laughs) And it feels
4: so, so odd because I have to tell you, like, maybe, you know, a year ago, I would have been like, oh, my God, here comes this same person again. You know, so you have a new appreciation for your patrons also. I mean, I I at least went through this because at times you can become a bit of a misanthrope in this business also. Right. But I have really come to appreciate customers and their wants and their needs uh, in the past six
2: months. That's interesting. And how, Robert, what are you hearing? You talked about trying to get buy-in from other restaurants. I mean, how challenging is it for restaurants to open back up after months of hiatus and within the guidelines that have been laid out?
3: It's extremely challenging. Like I just today, uh, an hour ago, I announced that we aren't going to be reopening Campanile. We're going to be shuttering it for good, uh, which uh, has been very difficult for me to do. As uh, we've has been here for twelve years. Wow. And and I'm it's sorry. Uh, thank you very much. That's I mean, tough. it's yeah. it's it's a very tough situation, and I know that there's a lot of restaurateurs and a lot of a lot of uh, owners across the country who are having to do this on a daily basis. And I feel for them, and, you know, it's very, very—it's a very tough business to begin with, and the new guidelines, well, they worked, they don't work for everybody. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you try and try and try, and uh, at the end of the day, if the numbers just don't work, there's no sense in dying over a business. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make well,
2: sense. I'm curious to know what, what, for you, was the final straw? What made you decide to, to make that decision to close down the restaurant?
3: It's it's the it's the unknown of of whether or not phase three will actually stick. That's number one. Like we have a we have a restaurant that's about 150 seats. It's not an overly large restaurant. It's not as small as Samir's. We did a lot of the calculations in the math to try to figure out how to reopen with social distancing. We couldn't figure out a way to make it work unless we dramatically changed their menu or, or concept. Um, hospitality is a massive part of of who our identity is and as an Italian restaurant, the conviviality of the table and the dining with wine and all that sort of stuff, it, it does not lend itself to the way dining out is right now. And we decided that we don't know in the, the, that it's going to get better. And unless we can do it the way we want to do it, we're not going to do it at all. And so we will, We will. the, the way we're going to pivot is close the restaurant and sell it and then hopefully open up something that makes more sense for this I don't know, the new normal, which I hate using that language, but it's <laughs> it just it just didn't work for us anymore. So
2: that must have been a, a really difficult decision, I imagine that you've had some some really tough conversations with with the staff at that restaurant and, and you know, everyone involved. Well absolutely. The toughest you know, the restaurant
3: business, as Samir will will attest to, it's a family it's a family thing. It's a family affair. Whether or not your your immediate family is working there or the staff become a part of your family and to try to tell them that they that you aren't allowed to come to family meal anymore and you know we're going to be shuttering the doors is a very difficult situation but it is it's a fact of life it's it's either that or you know lose my house and you know people do understand what's going on so
2: restaurant, quite literally, is a family-run restaurant. What yeah,
4: is, I mean, we're well, I'm, I'm very lucky to have my brother and sister there with me. And the staff, I mean, we're, we don't have a lot of staff. Um, I can count all the staff on my two hands, but um, you know, it was still difficult to tell them that I mean, we're not shutting down, but when it, when this first happened, we sh- completely shut down for about a week and a half, and we're just trying to think, what do we do? You know, how do we um, pivot? Because it was really pivot or die. As Robert knows, I mean, the margins on a restaurant are so small to begin with. Nobody gets into this business to make a lot of money because that's just not how it works. Um, You do it because you love community, because you love to put a smile on people's faces. And when you can't have people come through your doors, you kind of think to yourself, well, what's the point of this? And the first thing that came to my mind was... Uh, to start a GoFundMe. Like, I swallowed my pride and really just put a a call out and saying, look, if you love what we do, because we've been on Queen Street in Toronto for the past 15 years, basically saying, we need your help. And uh, I was so overwhelmed. Uh, We've raised $20,000 to date. Wow. And, yeah, I was literally crying when the money started coming in because some of our patrons were donating $500, $1,000. And that was what really propelled us to keep going. So we took some of that money and we bought a fridge, like a merchant open air merchandising fridge, and we started vacuum sealing our marinated meats, getting it ready for people to grill at home. And we basically made our place into a little market. And it's really been helpful that way because it still has that community feel. We're still seeing the people come and go. It's been a lifesaver, actually.
2: Hmm. I mean, according to Restaurants Canada, which is a, a nonprofit advocacy group, the industry estimated to lose as much as $44 billion in annual sales compared yeah. to 2019. I mean, the numbers are astounding.
4: It's not surprising. I mean, I, I read that uh, 50% of restaurants in New York City won't survive this. I, my own neighbors on, on the street, I've seen three f- four places already shut down. Uh, it's quite scary.
1: First part of Front Burner from CBC News, originally uploaded on August the 7th. Take a quick break and be back with the second segment after this.
0: You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: Now, segment two of Front Burner from CBC News, originally uploaded on August the 7th.
2: Robert, I, I wonder what what did that mean for you when there was the announcement that all restaurants had to shut down. What did you guys do back at that time?
3: That's an interesting story. I was in Toronto at the time, um, actually about to go to a Raptors game. <laughs> <And> <laughs> right. I got a call. I got a call. I was in contact with my manager, and you know business was getting slower and slower because the people were getting worried. And then I'll never forget it. Actually, I woke up on a Saturday morning, and I looked at the news as I do every morning, and. 400 people had died in in italy overnight overnight 400 people Mm. died of this virus and that's when i made call it's like no matter what the safety of our staff and the safety of our patrons is the number one priority we'll figure out the money after and we shut down and that was probably i think it was about three days before the bc government mandated that we shut down
2: although i imagine back then you you thought you probably thought it was going to be a couple weeks oh yeah yeah well <laughs> yeah, absolutely <laughs> nobody thought nobody thought we'd
3: be talking about this five months later like that we're still shut down nobody in a million years would have thought that so you just have to sort of do what a lot of restaurateurs have done like become markets and take out places and, and things like that you know it's it's a lot to ask of a small restaurant and it's a lot to ask of, of uh, an entire industry
2: Samira uh you know, I have to confess that I have not gone to a restaurant yet, mm-hmm. and I, I imagine that I'm probably in the majority, and as you say, the trust that patrons are going to have to feel in their restaurants, that, that the safety protocols are all there, is, is so important if customers are actually going to come in again. What will that look like? What, what do you think dining in restaurant needs to look like in order to kind of build that trust with patrons to let them know that in fact that this is safe?
4: I think we're going to see a real change in the dining experience. And and, and we're already seeing that. So we're seeing touchless payment and, and stuff like that. But, but I, I think we might see a sort of cleaning theatre happening too. I mean, I've, I've dined out at a couple of places recently and there's a lot of spray happening. But, you know, that's not necessarily nice either as you're sitting at a table and someone else is spraying the table
2: beside you. What do you mean by cleaning theatre?
4: You know, like... Um, cleanliness is going to be very important to people. So they're going to be looking when they come into a place, they're going to be looking to see what is this place doing? Is there sanitizer on the wall in the kitchen? For instance, I've worked in a lot of other people's restaurants before I opened a restaurant, and I for sure made sure that the restaurant that I opened had an open kitchen. And it really calms people down when they can see, oh, my food is coming from there. Oh, that person is the person touching it. All of these things go into diners' heads, and I'm not saying all diners are like this, but a lot of people are thinking about this stuff now, right. and they're telling me these things, so I'm very conscious of it. Like, when when I go into places, I look to see, you know, the, the light switch, how clean is that? Like, that to me is a marker of whether a place is clean or not. How clean is that light switch, because the person bringing my food is the person that's turning the lights on and off in that restaurant. So there's a lot of psychological things that I think maybe weren't there before are going to become really paramount right now.
3: Well, that that is the the number one key element, is to try to bring that trust back to the dining public. And it's going to be the hardest thing. And cleaning and cleanliness and disinfecting is already a massive part of what they do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. The professionals at it, they clean constantly all day long. And it's reiterating that fact that they're they're better cleaners in the kitchen than probably in the janitorial service. I mean, with every restaurant that I've ever run and every restaurant that I've ever been a part of, hmm. you know, at least a quarter of your day is spent cleaning up, cleaning down, disinfecting dishes. That's a massive part of who we are and what we do.
2: How do you, Samira saying earlier that she's not ready to open uh, up her indoor dining yet. How do you feel about dining rooms opening up? Like, Is this too soon? That, you know, that, <laughs> that is a very big question.
3: I mean, I've, I've dined out, I've dined out at a few places. I love dining out. It's one of my favorite things to do. I, I'm, I'm a chef restaurateur, but I'm a diner first. I love going out and having a great bottle of wine, a great meal with friends and family. And right now, it is very difficult to not feel, you know, like you're in a, a bubble of disinfectant. You know, when you go to a table, the protocol is that your table should be empty and everything should be brought to you as you sit down. And so just even the, the act of sitting down, I'm like, I shouldn't be sitting down right now because my table's not set. So it's just, it's very awkward right now. And it's going to take a little bit of time for people to get back into that groove of, of actually dining out. Um, but I, what restaurants are amazing at is figuring out
2: what customers want and then acclimating to it. So, Samira, at what does dining out look like right now?
4: You know, dining out really is dining on the street. Uh, we are able to, uh, because of Toronto doing Cafe TO, uh, restaurants set up these makeshift, what I like to call my pandemic patio. You know, we have these big concrete blocks that the city has brought and they've plopped one in front of each restaurant and then they've put up these very hideous pylons massive pylons that are like four feet tall so that the cars don't plow into you as you're eating on the street so uh, for me I like the sort of grittiness of it some people have dressed up their patios um, but what we did uh, last Saturday for instance was I took our grill it's a big charcoal grill that we use for catering events and I plopped it on top of that big piece of concrete and just basically did an outdoor charcoal barbecue all day Saturday and we had Hmm. we had one of our best days that we normally have so not during COVID like it was like a regular Saturday but I didn't have anybody inside my restaurant I only had people outside and I was able to lock my doors at nine o'clock and leave and Saturday we sat down after my brother sister and I and we thought I don't want to go back to normal. (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I don't want that. I want to be able to keep this grocery, have a market, have some people inside, have this sort of dynamic uh, feel where people are coming and going, but some people are dining, still be making the cocktails, but be able to close at nine. You know, normally we'd be leaving at two thirty in the morning. And if if it if it stays like this, like I don't know what the winter's going to hold. That's not going to be very nice because we can't right. have people sitting outside. So we are sort of freaked out about the winter coming. But right now, I'm really, we're enjoying this, you know. That's so
2: interesting. that it's so, so it's created an opportunity to innovate, to, to try out new things.
4: Absolutely. And I was talking to my sister about this. These were things that we wanted to implement a long time ago, but the pandemic sort of pushed us and propelled us to have to do that. And it's been great, you know. And I have to say this, our landlords... Have been wonderful. Uh, Hmm. We didn't get full rent relief, but we've only been paying the 25% of the rent right now, and that's been huge. So we've been very fortunate. And if my landlords are listening, thank you.
2: It's so interesting to hear the way that you have managed to be creative and find ways to, to survive, at least for the moment. For now. I, I wanna, well, as long as the subsidies keep coming in, I know that that at some point will dry up. Robert, what other sorts of creative solutions are you seeing from restaurants to try and at least survive through this, this period of time?
3: I mean, what Samira is doing is so amazing to me, and it's, it's a testament to the ingenuity and the, and the fortitude of, of people who run who are in this business. But you, my my big concern is that it's not a sustainable. It's not a sustainable thing. Mm-hmm. Like here in here in Vancouver, the city did a great job in like allowing all these small restaurants to open up patios. But nobody's talking. about The big elephant in the room is that it rains 250 days a year here. It's <laughs> <That's> true. <laughs> and the same with Toronto; like it gets bloody cold there and you know it's great right now but in three months time what, what's going to happen yeah that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge concern sh-
4: I mean who hmm. is going to be sitting outside <laughs> uh, you know come uh, end of October I don't think anybody wants to sit outside so that yeah. that is something that's looming over our heads and uh, it's very very concerning because I mean for a lot of people as you said I'm you know when you shut down Campagnolo Robert I'm sure that you know, there, you know, a lot of people who even when they do the numbers and it still doesn't add up, they still keep going. They will yeah. <laughs> they'll remortgage their homes. They'll do all yeah. of these things, even though they see, oh, my God, I'm, you know, going, I'm bankrupt or I, I have to give my car away or I, you know, I took my right. kids' school money, you know, to keep going. Yeah. And a lot of people are losing not just their restaurants, they're losing their homes.
2: A a lot of people will say, well, look, restaurants are are shifting and they're using Uber Eats and DoorDash and finding ways to deliver more that people are ordering in more. How how does that translate into profit for restaurants? Yeah, but
4: they're taking all your profit. A a company like Uber Eats, you know, uh, will take 30% of that bill. 30%? uh, Up to 30% is your profit. You're basically working for these (coughs) delivery apps. Yeah. Food DoorDash,
2: Uber Eats,
3: you know, Skip the Dishes they are the bane of the restaurant store. <laughs> it's, it's truth, truth, when we get an order and I'm just like oh I don't want to you know I don't want to pay that 30 point yeah and it's wow. like the only thing that's good about it is it just keeps the customers happy and it keeps the food fresh because it just keeps on it keeps on going out the door
2: mm-hmm. wow yeah so it's just it's, it's not that that's not going to be the model that no. that will save restaurants if this pandemic goes on for a long time no. definitely not definitely not <laughs> It's so heartbreaking to hear, partly because it feels to me like the antidote in many ways to the kind of isolation and loneliness and separation that so many of us are feeling during the pandemic is restaurants, is being able to eat communally and to, to, to see people and to be in crowded places. What, what do you think that we are at risk of losing if restaurants can't come back in the way that we knew them before the pandemic?
4: Oh, I think community I mean you lose communities. You've gone through funerals with them you've done their weddings, graduations. you've been there when they had their first date now they you know their child is two years old. So these relationships get formed and mm. you know once the industry gets decimated, you'll see entire communities disappear.
3: Yes, food is culture and when you lose that part of the community and that sense of what's going on, you know you lose a big facet
2: of what Canada is today. Well, I hope I I get a chance to walk inside both of your restaurants soon. Thank you so much for speaking with me today.
4: Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Robert. It was nice to, to meet you.
2: Very nice to chat with both of you. Thank you. FrontBurner is brought to you by CBC News and CBC Podcasts. This show was produced this week by Mark Apollonio, Shannon Higgins, Sarah Jackson, Allie Janes, and Derek Vanderwijk. Mandy Sham does our sound design with help from Mac Cameron. Our music is by Joseph Shabison of Boombox Sound. The executive producer of FrontBurner this week was Elaine Chow. I'm Josh Block.
5: Thanks for listening.
1: The second segment of Front Burner from CBC News, originally uploaded on August the 7th. Time for another quick break, and we'll be back with more After 9. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and
0: around Prince George, this is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM.
1: And we're talking local music. Next, uh, on the line, I have William Kuklis. Good morning, William. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. And yourself? Oh, pretty darn good. <laughs> okay. Obviously, you're inside then, because it's not very nice outside right now.
6: Well, I'm, am, I'm, am, I'm gazing out over the forest, and yeah, it doesn't
1: look very pleasant. <laughs> no. Now, you have been busy. Like, I think you've got a new album out. Well. I- Busy, I don't know. Busy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Who's busy? <laughs> well, as a songwriter, anytime as a songwriter and singer, anytime that you're making music, you're busy.
6: I guess that's true. That is true. I, I, I've, I've, I've got a little bit of work done. I find myself in in, in the uh, pandemic times uh, far less productive than I should be. No.
1: So, is it just? Hard to come up with set a, set a pattern for when you can write, or is that the way you do it? Well, there's just too much time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's just too
6: much time. I could write any time, and it's it. I, I guess uh, historically, I've I've written when I squeeze out the time to do it, and now there's like uh, a lot of time and space to do it, and it's uh, it's less motivating, I guess. <laughs>
1: So, then normally when you're doing the songwriting, you might have an idea during a time when you're busy and you've got to quickly make a note of it or something so that when you do get those moments when you can actually sit down and start writing, you've got the idea still.
6: Oh, well, absolutely. And it's, uh, yeah, you, I mean, I always keep, keep a, a notepad with me and then it's uh, take advantage of the moments that you have to, to do it. Um, it's, it's just, it's a funny scenario now because uh, there's a lot more moments available and less motivation to do it. Yeah.
1: Now, have you ever had a situation where you've gotten to one of your songwriting times in the past and you sit down, you flip open your notebook and you're looking at one of the notes that you made for yourself and you're going, I have no idea what that means.
6: <clears throat> uh, oh, oh, often, often. It, it's funny because, I mean, the, my process, usually it's, it's, it's written on the spot as opposed to, like, I don't write. I don't write, generally write in advance. You might come up with an idea or a a phrase, or you know something no. that that, that uh, tips you off to to going down a path. But often it's uh, you know you sit down with a guitar and, and start uh, start playing and come up with a melody, and then and then the words just uh, come to you. Right? That's that's how I work, anyway. It's, it's weird, <laughs> maybe
1: maybe not. So. So, how often does it sort of work the other way around, though, where you've got a line that you're thinking that is a great hook for a song, and then you've got to sort of figure out the rest of the song and figure out the melody that goes with it?
6: I mean, it, it happens too, but I find I find it. It's a lot. Uh, it's rare. It's 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 more the opposite way where where the song for me comes comes to me while I'm sitting down with the guitar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I do. Like I said, I have a notepad full of full of ideas, right? So sometimes you can draw from that and uh, a- and pull those things into what you what you've come up with on the spot. Yeah. But it, it, it's um, it's uh, it's rare that I, I sit down and write a, a, a lyrical ly- lyrics ahead of time, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it just comes comes the other way usually mm-hmm. for me.
1: So now. You've got the song written. You've got the lyrics. You've got the melody. It's looking great. You go to record it. How often do you make changes to things while you're in the studio? Uh,
6: pretty often. I mean, it's <laughs> it's, just, it's interesting because I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I that I own my own recording studio. I own, yeah. I own Vinyl Deck Studio. So, so for me, it's um. um I have that luxury, Um, you know. For other artists who who don't necessarily, you know, they're paying money to go to a studio to record. Um, You know, have to have everything together for. So for me, I I have the freedom to change things right on the fly as 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 I'm recording them, and uh, um, so it's it's often it happens often. So it it gives you me the opportunity to um, really tweak things here and there. Whatever whatever I feel like, oh, that needs to be changed. It's easy enough for me to just. Yeah.
1: yeah, you don't have to worry about talking to five different people in the recording studio and saying, you guys take 15 minutes, I've got to do something.
6: Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's uh, I'm lucky that way for sure.
1: Yeah. So the songs that you've been writing during the pandemic, how do they compare to songs you've written before? Like, are you finding yourself writing about different subjects or would people hearing the new stuff not notice anything really different? I don't think it's I don't think it's a different. I mean, uh, you know, once I get around to
6: actually recording stuff, maybe it will be entirely odd and totally different than what what I have. But right now, from from the perspective, I, I don't I don't see a huge um, you know this is obviously pandemic material.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But for one thing, it's tough to write something with coronavirus.
6: That is true, right? Exactly. Coronavirus. Uh, yeah, I don't know, no. know where you'd start.
1: <laughs> no. So, where are you in terms of another album? Like, have you got enough material at this point, or are you still writing? I'm. I'm still writing. I'm
6: always writing. Yeah. I mean, and, and you write stuff, and some things just go away. You know, not not everything you write works out. Um, you know, often for me, like, especially with the last album, my, newest, my latest, uh, uh, um, I'll Be All Right, I mean, that yeah. generally was written in four weeks, three weeks, wow. I, I wrote the whole album. So, it, you know, it, sometimes it just comes in bursts. I mean, that's more often than not. It just, it's these bursts of frantic writing. And then, you know, I take a, a year and a half off. <laughs> 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 Maybe pump out a couple of couple of new tunes, but uh you know often it just comes in these bursts
1: yeah. so when you are in that period in between albums where as you say you might get a couple of new songs, do they almost always get onto the next album or are there times where you've had a new song, and for whatever reason it does it never really sees the light of day, shall we say on an album
5: well, well you
6: know it's <clears throat> if you look at a song like um um Standing Strong, which was written, mm-hmm. I wrote back in 2017. Right. So I wrote this song about the wildfires, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2017, and it was sort of in between albums. Like it just was one of those songs that I wrote at that time. So I actually put it on the latest album from 2019, I'll Be Alright. Mm-hmm. So, so the song's there. Um, you know, so sometimes they make it, and some, I mean. I have songs that I've never recorded too, right? They're, yeah. they're just they're there that I'll play them live, but I've never put them on an album because they just didn't fit or it didn't. It just didn't work out. Yeah.
1: Are there some of those songs that you've got that you're still looking at and saying it's nice to have that one in reserve in case I need one more song for an album because I know that's a good song.
6: Uh, yeah, sometimes sometimes you have that. I mean. Um, if, if you're lucky enough to have that extra, <laughs> the extra, you know, sometimes when you're making an album, you go, "Geez, that's, I gotta, I gotta get some more material here." Like, I, you know, I've got some really good stuff, but you know, the songs that I have in the drawer aren't just quite aren't you know um, worked out enough, or you know, they just don't fit with the theme or, or or whatever. So then you're sort of in this position of, "Oh, I gotta, I gotta crank out some more, mm-hmm. some more material, right?" So. So sometimes you're lucky to have that. Sometimes you're panicking to try and uh, find some, write some new tunes that fit, right?
1: Okay. We, we've got to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you some more about what you've been doing musically during the pandemic for playing After 9.
0: It's After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: So William, you've been saying you've had a lot of time for writing songs during the pandemic and everything. Obviously, not so much time for actually being able to go out and play the music.
6: That is very true and very sad. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's, um, you know, obviously a really terrible time for uh, musicians and uh, artists um, (laughs) alike, you know, um, not being able to get in front of crowds and play. Um, So, you know, I... Take advantage of the Internet the best you can. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've been doing these, uh, what I'm calling, live music quickies, which are just, you know, random appearances on on, uh, Facebook or Instagram and just playing songs and things like that.
1: So do you give people a little bit of a heads-up, though, like uh, tonight at 7 o'clock I'm going to be on Facebook playing a few tunes? No, not
6: not generally. Not generally because it's just, uh, you know, basically it's when the – you know, the tagline is that I, no, like I, I haven't, I don't prep them, right? Mm-hmm. So I just no prep, no preening, and just grab a guitar and go. <laughs> and so basically, I just whenever the mood strikes me, I just grab my guitar, turn on the camera, and and do them live. So there's probably quite a few of them that are out there where I'm just looking like absolute pandemic hair and <laughs> uh, a nightmare. But um, you know, it was just kind of fun because you know. <laughs> Everyone and their dog is doing are doing live streams and, yeah. and, and stuff out there, right? And it's the market's kind of saturated, and um, you know, people are tired. I'm tired. Everyone's musicians are tired of doing it. Everyone's tired of doing right. So for me, if you do, I just throw out one song at random times, and if you're lucky enough to catch it live, great. Um, and uh, you know, it's, they're all on my Facebook as well, so you can always go and go and track them down and, and take a listen
1: now when you were able to actually go and as you say play live in front of a crowd, how often did you find their reaction to songs influenced which songs went on an album?
6: Um, oh definitely I mean that's definitely that definitely plays in when you're playing a new song yeah if, if, um, you know you can read if you get a good reaction then that that's uh, always uh, a good a good marker to uh, put that on an
1: album for sure yeah. And as as opposed to that, if the audience starts walking out halfway through, you're kind of going, okay, that one's not going to go. Maybe maybe that one needs a little work or something. Exactly. So have you been talking very much with other musicians during this time to find out what they are doing to sort of keep busy and keep in front of the public?
6: Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, um, you know, know, we have a a, a good crowd of musicians that we're all pretty... Pretty close around. Um, I've been working with uh, uh, Joe Shea, who's and uh, we mm. formed the band called The Ebbs. and um, so we've been we've been working on some stuff as well as The Ebs with Joe and uh, uh, Vince Scott Neff, who's uh, who's a fiddle player in town. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so we've got we formed the Ebs, so we've been doing some work there. So we're in the process of releasing. Our first single, as well as that band, so we've just got that uh, recorded. We've we put together a, a pandemic type video um, because what else are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've done that. Um, we've, we were lucky enough to get together and do some sort of social distancing uh, uh, shows in, in in our driveways. Mm-hmm. So basically, the three of us would get together and uh, you know <laughs> play outside and some shows that way and we, we did get a house concert uh, a safely a social mm-hmm. distance house concert in um, as well so you know we've been lucky that way but you know we're just trying to keep ourselves everyone's trying to keep themselves busy and
3: yeah.
6: everyone's trying to come up with the next idea that's not uh, the same as the other person right just something something new to keep everyone interested and, and engaged
3: yeah. yeah so
1: are there any thoughts with you and some of the other local musicians about possibly doing maybe not like a concert, but a group of you maybe getting together at a planned time and just maybe you'll play a song and then the next musician will play a song and maybe they'll be on the same channel or everything. Or maybe when you finish, you'll say, okay, uh, John Smith is up next. Head over to his Facebook page and catch him.
6: Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, that's a great, I mean, it's a good idea, right? It would be be nice to sort of uh, put together like a, 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 sort of a festival or something like that—a a virtual festival uh, of some sort would be, would be nice. Um, you, you know, there's always talk. There's yeah. always talk, and who, you know, who knows? I yeah. mean, um, it's a matter of someone grabbing the reins and going with it, right? And um, 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 I'm sure we'll get around to that for sure at yeah. some point.
1: Okay, William, um, as always, a pleasure to t- chat with you. Thank you. Thanks Alan, so for having me. Yeah, so hopefully you'll be able to get back on the road again pretty quick too. Here's hoping. Here's hoping. Yep. Let's get this, uh, <laughs> this thing done here. <laughs> okay. Uh, we are going to wrap up this segment, actually, with a um, song from William Kuklis. Uh, one of the songs, I like most, almost all of his stuff, but this one I really like. This one's called Save Me.
5: Spinning round and round in circles on this unholy carousel We're all trying to jump off but careful to make sure no one can tell Save me, save me from ourselves Save me, save me from ourselves. Our lips are moving, nobody's making a sound. Better get it off your chest before we tear this whole thing down. This whole thing down. Yeah. It's just a matter of time before we fight the next round. With the rhythm of a drum, it just keeps beating me down. Beating you down. Save me, save me from myself. can see it through Ooh. Ooh. save me save me from ourselves
1: featured on an upcoming episode of Folk Roots Radio, which airs Mondays at 7 o'clock on our station. I'm not sure exactly which day he will be on, but the interview has been recorded and everything. So we are now going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more After 9. Featuring
0: the people who make things happen and Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM.
1: And we are talking hockey now. I have Andy Beasley, the Vice President of Business for the Prince George Cougars on the line. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. So, the WHL has now set a date for when the season will start, so I'm guessing you and the rest of the guys at the Cougars are starting to sort of work back from that to figure out when things have to happen. Yeah, it's it's
7: uh, there's a lot of moving pieces <laughs> putting on just one single WHL game, let alone an entire season. So there's a there's a large amount of work that still needs to be done, but we are uh, we're happy that there is a date that's been set. We're happy that we've got a target and uh, now it's just a matter
1: of continuing to plug along and, and get ready for the season. So the season is scheduled to start December the 4th. Do you know yet on the schedule, are you guys playing opening night?
7: We don't know the schedule yet, and that's part of what this, um, mm-hmm. what the, the moving the start date, date back is enabling the league to do is to look at a variety of scenarios. For example, uh, we all are fully aware of the trouble with the, uh, the American border and the likely, you know, my guess is, I don't know any more than the next guy, but I'm kind of guessing that it's not going to be open. So we may end up having to uh, redo the schedule so that we don't go into the States for the first part of the season or maybe even the entire season. Um, so we're having, we're having to do a variety of schedules that include BC only play to start off with or Canada only play and uh, you know, a whole variety of other scenarios.
1: So knowing that the start date, though, for the season is December 4th. So working back from that, when are you guys figuring training camp will be starting? Because I'm kind of guessing there may not be any exhibition games this year either.
7: Well, if there are, they're going to be limited to, for, for sure to just one or two. But we're would like to. Uh, we thinking that we're going to be able to get the guys back uh, November 15th. It would be a very shortened training camp mm-hmm. this year, a uh, very shortened trial process. We wouldn't be inviting very many people to our camp. And um, so November fifteenth is kind of what we're looking at, but there's a there's another thought being floated out there that uh, whether we should be right across Canada bringing the guys in earlier than that so they can get settled into Prince George and their other communities, start school for those of them that are in school, and, and then that way we could get some practice time in with them, but. Uh, that comes with its own logistical challenges and, and problems. So.
1: Yeah, and I'm guessing one of the things you've got on your plate as well then is the international players, like the European players on the Cougars and the WHL and the other WHL teams, because when they come in, they have to self isolate. Absolutely,
7: we've got a we've got a player in Finland. We've got a player in Czechoslovakia. <laughs> we have several of our players that are in the states. Um, and then, of course, scattered through Canada. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of self-isolation that's going to happen. And uh, But, you, you know, Alan, at the end of the day, uh, much as we're all clamoring to get going and we want to get the guys back, the other side of the coin is that we really don't want our guys to get sick. We don't want our billet families, our staff, our fans, our community, and the players themselves. The, the safety really is number one. So, I guess, frustrating as it is, we're all very also content to just say let's Let's wait until we can do this safely, and we have a plan that's really going to be acceptable to everybody involved.
1: So the WHO made the announcement start date December the 4th. At that point, and after City Council made their recent announcement which arenas would be opening, at that point, did you guys start talking to the city about being able to use CN Center?
7: we, we um, as you know, our offices are in the CN Center, mm-hmm. so we've been able to still access our, our offices and operate fairly normally, and I talk to them every single day without any exaggeration. Um, so we are, we and they are very familiar with each other's ideas. Uh, we, I was quite confident that Council was going to make that decision, but um, I can also tell you we've been very much assured that once the... WHL is officially I mean officially able to open up and we have firm plans that of course the CN Center will be available
1: for us to play so there's no there's no need to worry about we might have to start our training camp or something in, in one of the kin centers for a while
7: well, that that's a possibility, and we we're being completely open with the city and and as flexible as possible, and saying we'll do whatever it takes to to get things up and running and to help out and to be good good partners with the city. Um, and uh, you know, for example, we we normally run a hockey school right now, actually this week for for little kids. We voluntarily gave that up, even though it's a really important program for us. It's a good fun, fundraiser, and it's also a really great development for the kids. But we we said to be a good partner with the city we're not going to ask you to put ice in just for that and, and why don't you just hold off until we really, really need it. But, yeah, for sure, we might, we might end up starting training camp in one of the kin centers until the ice is ready in the CN Center and, again, really whatever it takes to get us going.
1: And I'm thinking another one of the things that's probably still a bit of a moving target is spectators at games.
7: Well, right now the league has said that, you know, we need to just financially to make it, we need to look at having 50% capacity in mm-hmm. arenas across uh, across the league. Uh, again, we would be naive to think that that's the only percentage out there because, if we have to socially distance people inside our arena, it might be that we can only fit in 1,200 people to mm-hmm. keep everybody six feet apart uh, or some, you know, some number like that. So, again, we're, we're working really hard with Bonnie Henry in B.C. and all the other six jurisdictions that the
1: WHO covers to, to
7: figure out how we can do this and how many people we can get in the arena.
1: And I'm guessing a lot of that as well is working with the city to say, okay, how are we going to be able to do concessions and stuff like that and even the lobby between periods?
7: Well, the funny thing is, is out of all this mess, and it is a mess, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's so challenging, but we're also seeing some great opportunities. So just very quickly, food and beverage is one of them, where it looks strongly as if regardless of COVID, now we're going to switch to a uh, uh, use your telephone to order your food. So mm-hmm. if you want a, a burger, you, you, you text it to some app that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, they prepare your burger and then you pay for it on your app. And you simply go to the concession, show them your phone, and say, "I paid for this," and you pick up your burger. And there is no lineup and no uh, no need to exchange cash. So that kind of thing's kind of cool because I think our fans are going to love that anyway. And it's a, as a result of having to adapt uh, from COVID. So, the, but the answer to your question is yes. We're doing a lot of discussions about how we're going to have washroom access, food and beverage access, how we're going to take tickets at the door without
1: creating big lineups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So at this point. of the stuff to do with the season Is still up in the air
7: Yes we have I guess the way I would answer that is We we are committed to playing the full 68 game season one way or another Whatever it's going to take we're going to do it um, and we have a whole variety of different plans out there. The idea now is to start whittling away to narrow down which plan is the one that's going to be acceptable to everybody and be effective for, for everybody involved. So um, it is all up in the air, but we are, we are going to be prepared, whatever the scenarios
1: are going to be. We'll be ready. Okay. Andy Bees of the Prince George Cougars, as always, a pleasure to chat with you about what's going on. Thank you so much. Okay. That'll about wrap it up for today's show. Uh, we'll be back on the air tomorrow after nine.